This podcast is powered by the leading at the top of your game development experience. If you would like to work with Karen and the shockingly different leadership team to up-level the leadership execution acumen within your organization, visit developingyourgame.com to find out more. I feel like almost like we have whiplash. One year ago, we were talking about how do we tackle the great resignation about that one year ago. And now we see companies laying people off at rapid pace because they're worried about recession. Welcome to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast, where we equipped you to more effectively lead your seat at any employer, business, or industry in which you choose to play. Each week, we help you sharpen your leadership acumen by cracking open the playbooks of dynamic leaders who are doing big things in their professional endeavors. And now your host, leadership tactics and organizational development expert, Karen Farrell-Rhodes. Hey there, superstars. This is Karen, and welcome to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast. You know, just because we are all leaders doesn't mean that we don't constantly struggle with our own inner critics, right? I mean, I don't know of a single individual who doesn't, you know, at times wonder if they can achieve a tough goal or wonder if they have completed a task to the best of their ability or feel that their capability is less than 100% of what is expected. However, I bring you hope today because today's guest not only has insights on how to quell that inner critic of yours, but they have also walked a 500-mile pilgrimage on the El Camino de Santiago in Spain to bring us such learnings. Her story is absolutely fascinating. Shannon Wallace is the founder and CEO of Cascade Leadership, which is a global leadership development and executive coaching firm. She has been an executive at companies such as Microsoft, Coca-Cola, and Citibank, and is renowned for her ability to to help leaders and teams create extraordinary but achievable business visions that deliver next-level impact. I've known Shannon for many, many years, and she is an absolute open book whose personal story is immensely compelling. Believe me, there is no way you will not want to listen to every second of her episode. So while you do, we'll jump in in just a second, but be sure to stay tuned for just two minutes after the episode to listen to my closing segment called Karen's Take, where I share a tip on how to use insights from today's episode to further sharpen your leadership acumen. And now enjoy the show. Hey there, superstars. This is Karen and welcome to today's episode. I have the honor of having one of the most fantastic people that I know as our guest today. In full transparency, she was my former boss when we worked at uh, Microsoft years ago, but we've always stayed in touch. And if there was a person who leads at the top of their game, this is this person. So we are so pleased to welcome to today's show, Ms. Shannon Wallace, who is the founder and CEO of Cascade Leadership which is a leadership development company, a global leadership development company. And she's also the author of a book called We the Change, Launching Big Ideas and Creating New Realities. So welcome to the show, Shannon. I'm so delighted to be with you. This is really, really fun. Isn't it fun? (laughs) 
we could talk for hours, but okay. unfortunately, we only have a you know about a few minutes. So let's, if you don't mind, let's delve right into the interview today. But before we go deep into a lot of your insights, for as much as you feel comfortable, would you mind sharing a bit about your background, maybe your education, where you grew up, and um, a high-level overview of your professional history? Karen, you know me. I'm an open book. I wasn't always. Uh, it took me a long time to get to the place that I am, and it, it, that'll be more understood as I share a little bit about my background. So I'll start by telling you that I think when most people meet me, because of the companies I've worked with, where, because of the, you know, the education that I have, people usually assume I come from a really privileged background. And I would agree with them because I grew up in the United States where I had access to health care, I had a home, and I got an education, and I had food. And I grew up under the poverty line. So in my experience growing up, I didn't perceive that I had all of those things. And one of the probably massive turning points in my life was working with Microsoft where you and I met. And I had the opportunity to really work on six continents. And I saw real poverty. And it changed how I perceive my entire situation and also called me to do some different things. And in that process, made me realize that who I really am is the American dream. So I came from nothing and I turned my life into something. And all of my siblings have a very different situation in life, honestly, because they've shared with me because I went to college first. So education is so important in my life in terms of helping to eradicate poverty. That's where I, I donate about 20% of my time per year to nonprofits that are focused on eradicating poverty, primarily through education. I was really privileged in that I was able to go to Northwestern University. And I can tell you, honestly, having grown up in South Dakota, I could not afford to go to South Dakota State and Northwestern made it completely possible for me. And, and that usually blows people away. They're like, how is that possible? Right. And it's because, yeah, they just, they helped it make sense. You know, South Dakota State gave me some, like, this is what you owe us. And I couldn't even wrap my head around it. I didn't understand loans, Pell Grants, things like that. Northwestern made that possible. And because of that, I later went on to Duke for business school. And then my career was really in consulting. I was at Coopers and Librand, then I was at Pricewaterhouse before they merged doing organizational consulting. And I was in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, where you're located, but didn't know you at the time. Didn't know each other. <laughs> and then, you know, all roads lead to the mothership of Coca-Cola in Atlanta. So I ended up at Coke. And when I was at Coke, I moved to Vienna, Austria, where I was the chief of staff to the president of Central Europe and Eurasia. And then within two weeks of my arrival, the CEO at that time, Doug Ivester, was basically removed by the board. and. That ended up in a massive restructuring where I lost my job four weeks later. Oh, man. I know. And my husband and I ended up in Spain. He's half Spanish, you know, half Spanish, half American. And we ended up in Spain. I ended up doing freelance work. We moved back to the States. And that's when I joined Microsoft. And that's when I met you. Yes. And the so, rest is history. <laughs> so I've kind of evolved from... I didn't mention like before I went to grad school, I was working as an accountant and actuary. So this is a, like a wide departure, but it was little steps where I went to grad school, I ended up in consulting from, from doing business process reengineering into organizational change, from organizational change into leadership. 
And so that's how my career evolved. And then eventually, I really did feel called to help in some small way, shape or form with eradicating poverty. And it's actually what caused me to then leave Microsoft and start my own firm so that I could have more flexibility to donate my time in that way. And so I've been doing this 11 years. I'm really proud of what I've built. I'm really proud of the work that I've done with private enterprises, but also really with the work I've done eradicating, you know, helping to eradicate poverty with the, the, you know, organizations that I work with. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I feel very, very privileged. And I'm proud of you too, Shannon. I mean, you've always been so supportive. I mean, people pray for, you know, managers or bosses that are empathetic and understanding and collaborative. You named the adjective and you absolutely always were and continue to be. And it does not surprise me that Cascade Leadership has uh, grown to the extent it has because you make impact all over the world and you always have, always have. You're definitely a shero of mine. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Uh, I love that. Well, you know, one of the things that we both have in common, as you know, this whole you know podcast is about exemplary leadership and some of the the key trends and things to think about and some of the quagmires that leaders have to tackle. And we've always studied ever since you know you and I've worked together, have studied you know kind of what's worked well, where are our participants struggling? And I'm just curious in these days, since you're more in consulting again, are you seeing any trends that leaders are having trouble tackling these days? And if so, could you share maybe one or two? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, it, now today I work in kind of three ways. I work, you know, one-on-one as an executive coach. I deliver, I design and deliver leadership programs for high potential leaders and companies. And I also work with leadership teams. So, you know, really what's present at this moment is I think just the complexity and the amount of change that organizations are experiencing. I mean, I feel like almost like we have whiplash. I mean, one year ago, we were talking about how do we tackle the great resignation? Right, right. One year ago. And now we see companies laying people off at you know rapid pace because they're worried about recession. And I mean, to go from how do we desperately retain people to how do we desperately lay them off? I mean, it, it it's kind of crazy to be working in that. And, you know, I think the leaders that I'm working with, everybody has their incredible strengths and they also have their development opportunities. And what I really see people struggling with is how do you, how do you de- tackle all of this with compassion? So they're, they're not, you know, I always joke that nobody shows up work to try to create havoc and mess with people. And yet the environment is creating havoc and messing with people. Everybody feels, I think, I mean, I see so many clients who are feeling really kind of triggered. They're not at their best and they have to kind of tap into what enables them to be at their best. And I spend a lot of time in the coaching one-on-one kind of helping people to see what do I look like at my best? What's my best self? How do I get there? How do I know? How can I predict when I might not be there? What can I do to create better structures around me to be more at my best? So that's kind of what I see going on right now. Oh, so insightful. I'm seeing the same thing um, in our consulting world as well. And the other thing that I've noticed is 
most leaders feel that there's never a time that they can be off, especially with the new, yeah. uh, new, but the, you know, the in uh, hybrid model of work that has gotten so popular that we used to do all the time back in the day, yeah. but they just feel like they have to be on a hundred percent of the time. And with the ever changing markets and in their industries and, and helping their companies stay competitive and still motivating their teams, they just feel like they have to be octopuses and be almost specialists in everything when that's not, you know, realistic sometimes, no. wouldn't you say? Yeah. yeah. And, and that I would also add to that. So I completely agree. And I also think so many more people are working virtually, mm-hmm. right? So it's mm-hmm. hard to leave the work environment. You have to be really intentional about that. And then we're working across time zones. Yes. Yeah. So yes. many people. And so it is really, it's really hard to feel like, I can turn it off. I mean, I can wake up at three in the morning, turn over my phone and see new emails that have come in already from people I work with in Europe. Right. You know, so, and then remind myself, oh, I don't have to respond right now, but not everybody feels that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll say I'm guilty of that too, because I have clients in Australia and I'll Thing, you know, they'll email not expecting an answer, but I try to be, re- you know, responsive. But yeah, you just have to turn it on and turn it off and have that kind of self self control, if you will. So I'm still learning. I'm a work in progress. <laughs> I think any good leader is. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, I definitely want to really talk more about your book, um, Shannon, and um, some of the t- things that you talk about in there. Um, First of all, would you share with the audience a little bit of the overview about the book and what are some of the areas of focus that you talk about that I'm sure they'll want to, you know, run out and get a copy? Well, first of all, thank you for promoting my book. It is We the Change, Launching Big Ideas and Creating New Realities. And I learned this from a PR person that I should always have it at the ready and hold it up. Yes. And I, you know, I have your book. I was going to hold it up too and forgot it on the bookshelf. So I apologize. So I'm glad you, your PR person reminded you to do that. Oh, look at you. I'll also hold up your book. I love it. Thank you. Lead <laughs> at the top of your game. Yes. Back to my book. You know, to me, so the book was started as kind of a love letter to my daughters. So it was back in around 2018. I was in a, uh, coaching certification program. And in a rapid coaching exercise, somebody asked me what, what's something that you want to create? And it just came out of my mouth. I'm going to write a book. Who's it for? My daughters. What's it about? How to make real change happen in your life? Because I feel like I'm an example of that both personally and professionally. My career, you know, I've transformed my life personally and professionally. My, my work has been around change. How do you transform? And so that's how it started. And I decided to use El Camino de Santiago, a 500-mile medieval footpath across northern Spain as a metaphor for how, if you're a non-athlete like me, somebody who had never hiked, how do you start in the, you know, the northeastern part of Spain on the French-Spanish border in the Pyrenees Mountains in Roncesvalles? And then walk 500 miles or 800 kilometers across Spain to the northwest in Santiago de Compostela. And you've never done anything like this before. And so I use that as a metaphor throughout the book to tell my story of the first time I walked it, which was back in 2002, and then the lessons that I learned. And then 
to go from there into my personal reflection now. What have I learned since then? How can I explain what was really going on with me, how I actually ended up in Santiago de Compostela? And then in the second part, it's a workbook with over 40 coaching exercises for somebody who might not be able to afford a coach. Because I really believe that I started writing the book for my daughters. And as I start, and as I got into writing the book, I realized I was writing it for my mom, who didn't have a college education. It was why we were living under the poverty line. She was working a minimum wage job, but she had she was an incredible artist. She had all these beautiful ideas, but she had no support network to say, how do you take your art and turn it into shoebox greetings? And so I wanted to give people like my mom, you know, young women kind of in their mid-20s to late 30s, a roadmap that enabled them to say, I have an idea or I want an idea. <laughs> how do I how do I make that happen and turn it into something real? And so that's kind of how the book came about. And then I started telling people that I was writing a book for my daughters. And in the process of my telling them, they said, oh, I'd really like to read that book. You know, I love people knew my Camino story. They'd hear me talk about it. And they're like, I want I want to read this book. And so then I was like, all of a sudden, a little bit about, you know, kind of what I call the inner critic. I've heard you talk about it in other many others talk about it as imposter syndrome thinking, Really? I mean, is anybody going to, I better get serious about this. I better learn how to write a book. <laughs> so then I knuckled down and it took me a while, but I was able to, you know, I'm really, really proud of it. I really am. I'm very proud of it too. Yeah. Would you mind sharing? Uh, Cause so we, we need at least one thing to add to our leadership playbook. So what is one piece of advice that you have included in your book or that you give generally during your coaching? Um, on a situation that we can share with our audience? So I want to go to a model that I use immediately in the book, which to me sums up something I live by. Anything is possible, anything. And I know it is cliche and I believe it is true. So I use this, this uh, very simple metaphorical multiplication equation called DVFR. It was originated by Gleicher, but then adopted and really popularized by Beckard and Harris, if you wanted to go look it up. And it stands for, D is for dissatisfaction of your current state. V is vision of your future. F is first steps steps to close the gap between that dissatisfaction of the current state and your vision of the future. And R is resistance to change. So it looks like this, D times V times F is greater than R. So because it's a multiplication equation, if any one of those is missing, D, V, or F, if one of them is zero, your product is zero, you will not overcome resistance to change. Yeah. And if you think of anything you've tried to change in your work, either personally or professionally, when you don't change, one of those, if not two, are missing. And every time you've been successful, they're all in place. They are all in place. You're so right. Dissatisfaction, vision, was that first steps? First steps to close the gap between, because if you, you know, if you have no gap between your current, your dissatisfaction, you know, your current state and your future state, your vision, then there's nothing to do. I mean, if they're in the same place, no gap, no first steps needed. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned the Doug Ivester story. Well, it, I was at Coke then when Doug Daft came in. 
And it was interesting. He gave, from my perspective, first steps to make a change happen. We have to reduce the workforce at Coca-Cola by 20%. So this is back in late 99, early 2000. Mm -hmm. We're going to reduce by 20%. I don't think his vision of what was supposed to be created and uh, or dissatisfaction with the current state was well understood. Mm. And it was interesting because he wasn't with Coca-Cola a couple of years later. And that's really, I mean, for people who know Coke, they don't change over CEOs like they that. do not. <laughs> they do not. It has to be something major. Yeah. So I often use that as kind of a, you know, just see how this works. So you have to have all of those in place. And here's the cool thing about first steps. You don't have to have all the steps. You just have to have the first steps because once you have the first steps going, it's like, you know, when you're walking the Camino, you don't have to walk the whole thing in one day. It's literally, you know, baby step after baby step. And and when you talk about somebody who is not an athlete, not a hiker, who ended up with 16 blisters on her feet because she didn't know what she was doing, you know, literally some days it's just, I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other. Right. That's all. And eventually you got to the finish line, right? Exactly. Exactly. And And much the wiser. (laughs) Well, and, and I really use that approach with people. Like we don't have to figure it all out today. What's one baby step you can take in the next two weeks before we meet again, that's going to move you a little closer. And if we can identify that, it's amazing how, I mean, it's so interesting because sometimes I have clients who are like, well, I can do these 10 things. And I'm like, just tell me one that you're going to do. And because 10 can be overwhelming, you might have really good intention and you might only do the one 20 minutes before we meet, but you're one step closer to whatever your destination is. That's right. They have to keep going. And, you know, a lot of times people get almost like deer in the headlights because what happens is there's some kind of conflict or adversity that confronts them. And so they almost get paralyzed because they're not sure which way to go. So I'm just curious, what's your thoughts on, you know, conflict as it relates to leading and leadership? So I think that's such a great question because I think you have to have it. And I think a lot of us, a part of what can get in the way. So I often start out with, if you want to think of vision, what is it that you want to create? If you want to think about dissatisfaction with the current state, what's getting in the way of you having it today? And it is often our own stuff. It's not a structural issue of, I don't know, I don't have that skill. I don't know how to do it. That might be true, but really it's usually something much deeper around, I don't think I can have it. I don't think I'm smart enough, good enough, pretty enough, whatever it is to have that thing. Conflict, many of us don't feel, I mean, we didn't usually learn in our families of origin how to manage it well. I certainly didn't. No, I didn't either. And then I think my kids, they grew up with, you know, use your words, but it wasn't, didn't teach them really how to skillfully use their words. So I think a lot of people know maybe what they need to say, but then they blurt it out and they leave this kind of wake behind them of damaging the relationship. And they fear that because we, you know, human beings want belonging. And so they fear that disconnection. And so they then, because I don't know how to do this well, I avoid it. And yet- If you really want to bring people on board with an idea, you have to kick the tires. You have to say, why won't it work? What are the risks? Who's going to say no? Why would they say no? Because the more you surface all of that, and it's going to create tension, which is going to create conflict. 
the more you can surface it, the more you can deal with it, the more you deal with it, the more likely you are to overcome it and mitigate it. And so you have to do it. And yet we avoid it. And then that gets in in the way. And so one of the lessons I had in walking the Camino is I think you have, I could just say, say what needs to be said. And then I give a model in the book that I call productive dialogue. It's four C's around how can you do this skillfully? And I always joke that there's the four C's and that we usually start with the third one. And the third one is content. Content is you, you have wronged me. You've wronged me in some way. And then, you know, you're on the other end going, what, what? Yeah. I'm going to try to defend myself. Right. Right. And so I found like really the, the most helpful thing. And if people want to, I, I can go into this further if you want, but I, it's also in the book, creating context. What is something that you and I both want? So do we, you know, and I think of it in terms of what's the result that we want to create together? What is, uh, what's some aspect of our relationship that we both consider to be important or what's a value that we both hold? That's right. And if we can stay focused on that, that's kind of the vision for the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then we can, um, that's C, C1, okay? Yes. C2 is then create, if we have that vision of something we both want to want, why wouldn't we want to have the conversation? And then number two is, is a consent. So how do I create psychological safety for somebody to enter the conversation with me? And that's where I turn it over to, I'll ask people like, I know that we both really believe that being on time with our customers is really important. When can we have a conversation about that? So that they can then feel ownership of saying, I'd have a conversation and I can kind of control when it's going to happen. This creates a little more psychological safety. So there's a lot of neuroscience under this and positive psychology, uh, but those two things can help transform a really difficult conversation that's related and where we're gonna surface conflict. So, but it moves the conversation forward so that you can get to the next stage, right? Of exactly. engagement. Yeah. And for you listeners who've been with us for a while, um, what Shannon just described is a perfect example example of leading with stakeholder savvy, which is in the lead at the top of your game book, which is all about, you know, really undertaking the time to understand those that you are communicating and relating to and understand their perspectives, their values, what is top of mind for them comparing to what's top of mind for you. It's all about, you know, being curious. But at the end of the day, if you're leading, you're trying to have this conversation so you can get to the the end game. And before we had our we got on the uh, podcast, Shane and I had a, a quick chance to catch up and she mentioned how important uh, the the tactic of driving for success is. And so I wanted to give you a moment to share why that was, uh, Shannon. So I have to believe that people are listening know your book, but I'm just going to do another little plug for it and say, <laughs> yes, you. I think, you know, I really think you did a great job with this book. You have a lot of wonderful research Thank in you. it. Um, and I really appreciated all of the work and kind of the intellectual horsepower that came into being. I've seen you create a lot of things in your career. You are, it, it, what's really lovely about you is you're very creative, but you also know how to put things into action. Most people don't have both skills. They usually yeah. have one or the other. And so I, 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 coming back to the kind of the drive for results piece, but in the drive for results piece, I think, again, it goes back to the baby steps. So I think we are our own worst enemy. 
We may not always know how to get things done, but if we focus on what we want and don't let go of it, because often the first place that we end up not getting what we want is we say, I can't have it. I can't have it for all sorts of reasons. I don't know how, I don't know how is a big one. I'm not worthy of it. That's your inner critic is telling you, who are you? Who are you to do this? I mean, if I lived my life like that, I, I wouldn't be, I'd still be in South Dakota, probably living in, you know, a small home. And, you know, my mom kept our heat in the winter at 55 degrees. Oh, good gracious. (laughs) And I'd be really cold. So I just believe it is one step at a time. And what I would share with anybody listening is that just to be really clear, your inner critic is lying to you. Mm, Say that again. Your inner critic is lying to you. Yes. And what does it know? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I mean, there are so many examples of people doing something for the first time that they knew nothing about. That's right. If, if I, a couch potato non-athlete, can walk 500 miles across northern Spain for the very first time with like 20 pounds on my back and uh, 16 blisters on my feet, I really believe pretty much anybody can do anything. That's right. That's right. We just have to get out of our own way. I also think that there's a lot, you talk about kind of the the political acumen, right? Mm-hmm. Stakeholder savvy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Your supporters are critically important. And I think for a very long time in my life, Karen, I thought I did everything alone. I didn't think I had anybody supporting me. Really? I don't think I've ever known that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I felt it. And what I came to realize through walking, honestly, walking through the Camino where I had kind of a spiritual experience was that that was an illusion. That was kind of a protective mechanism for myself because things didn't feel safe in my home. I couldn't rely on those people, the people in my home. And so I became very conscious of relying on myself. And then in the process of learning how to rely on myself, I started to believe that really I always had to rely on myself. I didn't know how to ask for help. I thought God had not abandoned me, but had blessed me with gifts to help me be self-sufficient. And that, you know, and honestly, because I have a very strong spiritual foundation, I believed that God hadn't abandoned me, but God really needed to focus on the people who he, you know, for whatever reason, hadn't given the same gifts to. So I was meant to do it alone. And then that's a big part of my story is that we are not alone and we have supporters around us at all times. I mean, I look back, even my mom got, you know, God bless her. She had, you know, she didn't have the education, but she was there. She was my champion. She always thought, you know, that I was, she told me I was special. I thought everybody grew up thinking they were special. You were special, Shannon. (laughs) And um, she had that gift of really making you, you know, drink the Kool-Aid. And I think all good parents do that, but you know, she really did that. So we, she didn't have a lot she could offer financially, but she believed in me. And then I have to think of the teachers that I have. I think of the colleagues that I had that I wasn't aware of were just there and in, in deep support of my being at my best. Mm-hmm. And I was blind to it. But then after I walked the Camino, I could really look back on all of that and go, oh my gosh, I have been so blind. What an illusion I was living. We are all so connected. 
We are all so connected. You're so right. <laughs> and, it, and and it's why I actually named the book We the Change. So the, the we means two things. So I believe, you know, Gandhi had said, be the change you want to see in the world. And the more I've reflected on my life, it is we the change you want to see in the world. Because you're not walking alone. We're not walking alone. But we, I capitalized W, capital W, capital E, and it means women empower the change. Uh-huh. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Oh my goodness. So I, and I think of that more as the feminine energy, feminine Mm -hmm. energy is about, so men have it as well, right? Yeah. But it's the, it's the connection piece that through our willing to say what we want, ask for help, um, accept help, connect and accept help. We can really move mountains. We can create new realities in our communities. And that was why, I mean, so in the end, when I was done with the book, I was like, please help it find its audience because I, I mean, I obviously, you know, I really fundamentally believe we can change anything if we're willing to do it together. That's right. That's right. And audience, if you can't tell, I mean, Shannon is a true visionary in almost everything she does. I mean, she's talking to it in relation to her book right now, but she is the ultimate vision, big picture person. And when we work together, I could, you know, if I could hear her vision, I could figure out how do we get there or what do we need to do to get it happening? But um, she's talented on all levels, but being a vision and seeing the big picture and giving direction and inspiring others are definitely gifts she's had her entire life. And especially the time since I've been working and knowing her. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, my last question for you, Ms. Shannon, uh, I'd love for you to share with the audience, um, just personally, what do you do and what does it take for you to lead at the top of your own game? Because you're running a, a, a global business these days and you're doing big things and you're have a, I understand a lot of uh, collaborations and partnerships. So how do you stay on top of your game? Well, I mean, for me, family is really important. So, you know, for me, feeling connected to family and and family is not, it's interesting. It's not just my immediate family. It's kind of like, I kind of, and you you know me well enough. Like when I connect with somebody, I might not see them for years. I might not talk to them for years, but once you're in my tribe, you're in my tribe. Like I ever, like forever. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so that's really important to me. I don't let go of that. And so that part of that, and then, you know, something interesting that I've done in the past three years started with a pandemic is that I participate on a weekly basis in an energy healing circle. So think of it like it's like a prayer circle. So Mm -hmm. where we work on healing for ourselves and others. And I did that because I was worried when I had to go to virtual, how will I connect with people? And because I knew when I walked into a room, I know how to do that. I just sense what's going on in a room. And I wondered, can I still do that virtually? And so I started working with a group of people virtually around the country who wanted to study this together. And I will say, you know, it's a mindfulness practice. So it enables me to kind of recharge. I'm always busy, 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 busy. I don't always allow a lot of quiet to come. And I, it's, so it's, it makes it makes me slow down 
And I think really connect in with, I, I'm, you know, as I said, I'm a spiritual person connecting with Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And then through that, really connect in with what matters most and listen. So I really feel like, you know, I, I, I shared with you that, you know, I left Microsoft because I felt called to do something different. And that those callings, I believe, come from a Holy Spirit. Yes. And so um, for me, it's like I'm listening or what am I called to do? So it's something that kind of that helps me to kind of connect, stay centered. And then honestly, I have my guilty pleasures like anybody. Um, I'm, my What's husband, one? Okay. So you're going to, you're going to laugh because it, it's kind of, it's honestly embarrassing, no. but um, it okay. is so silly, but I, I hate at night, like going through like bad news. You know, it seemed like everything was bad news. Yes. So I get on YouTube and I watch, uh, just videos called the Dodo. They'll love me that I'm, I, I <laughs> that I'm talking about it. It's about animals, rescue animals. And I'll usually watch like three little videos of the dodo if I want to feel, and it's not about, you know, rescued dogs, chickens, beavers. I mean, all sorts of things. Okay. I've got to look that up. The dodo. (laughs) That is, I I, sometimes my husband's like, what are, you know, we're in bed and I'm looking at the dodo. I mean, this is serious, right? (laughs) And so I'm like, I'm watching the dodo. (laughs) So. Okay, you know I'm going to go after the podcast and go look this up because that might be my new uh, favorite thing as well. <laughs> well, it's uplifting. I, huh? It's uplifting. It, well, that's what I need too as well. I think we all do. Okay, so listeners, I'll have um, a link to the Dodo on YouTube in the show notes, but I'm definitely going to check it out as soon as we finish the podcast. All right, Ms. Sheen, I have kept you over time. This has been absolutely fantastic and insightful. We thank you so much for coming to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast. Thank you for having me. I mean, really, it's been such a lovely pleasure to be with you in this way, just to connect and share a few laughs and um, really talk about, you know, I'm so passionate. We both are about leadership. We are. I will share one thing. You can add this as well, Karen. Okay, sure. I have an app. It's called Cascade Leadership. That's right. Mm -hmm. And it is a, think of it as a resource library with podcasts, TED Talks, articles, free assessments. It has a manager toolkit. And now I'm going to talk to Karen after this about having the lead at the top of your game podcast on my app. That would be fantastic. It's free. There's no notifications, no advertisements. It's really meant to be a resource for people to help them lead at the top of their game. That is awesome. All right, listeners, you have definitely got to download the Cascade Leadership app. All right. That has got to be a to-do, number one to-do once you listen to this episode. But thank you all so much for joining us again on the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast. It is an honor spending time with you all. Please be sure to rate and like and subscribe to the podcast and share with a friend. Uh, We'd love the additional listeners, and we also love to help others lead at the top of their game. And without further ado, we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation today with Shannon Wallace, founder and CEO of Cascade Leadership. Links to her bio, her entry to our leadership playbook, 
And additional resources can be found in the show notes, both on your favorite podcast platform of choice and on the web at leadyourgamepodcast.com. And now for Karen's take on today's topic of managing your inner critic. Well, today I wanted to connect how managing your inner critic is essential for one of the tactics that I write about in my book, Lead at the Top of Your Game. The tactic I want to connect it to is leading with executive presence. And as you know, executive presence, the way we define it anyway, (laughs) is your ability to make clear and convincing oral or written arguments in order to compel others to follow your lead. Now, to be clear, there are times when your inner critic can be helpful. You can use it to ask yourself if there are any blind spots you're missing or any perspectives that you've not yet considered. But the important thing is to manage it and keep it in check so that it doesn't rob you of your confidence or push you into a sea of inaction. The trick to dealing with your inner critic is to develop a balanced relationship with it. To not ignore it or avoid it and the emotions it raises, but to name it by calling a spade a spade. You know, and offering yourself counterexamples of how you indeed have the capability and expertise and also staying mindful and positive along the way. So what I recommend is to leverage a friend or accountability partner to talk about your insecurities and validate whether or not they're true. You can also use the time to brainstorm how to overcome your concerns. And, you know, having the courage to face your inner critic head on is going to be absolutely essential if you want to lead at the top of your game. So thank you for listening to this episode. And I really encourage you to uh, like and subscribe to the show and to share it with at least one friend, because I'm sure there's a tidbit that they can benefit from as well. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Lead at the Top of Your Game podcast, where we help you lead your seat at any employer, business, or industry in which you choose to play. You can check out the show notes, additional episodes, bonus resources, and also submit guest recommendations on our website at leadyourgamepodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn by searching for the name Karen Rhodes with Karen being spelled K-A-R-A-N. And if you like the show, the greatest gift you can give would be to subscribe and leave a rating on your podcast platform of choice. This podcast has been a production of Shockingly Different Leadership, a global consultancy which helps organizations execute their people, talent development, and organizational effectiveness initiatives on an on-demand project or contract basis. Huge thanks to our production and editing team for a job well done. Goodbye for now.